Welcome to the Wondering Toward Wisdom podcast. Today, Joel and I do a bit of wondering with both the A and the O in wondering about Advent, specifically that at the center of Christianity is a change in history and that our faith is in a God who became a part of history and a series of events that took place in history. And we look forward to further changes in history. That is, Christianity is not merely a collection of dogma that can be derived from logic, nor merely a set of doctrines implied by science or morality or any other set of claims that anyone with reason can ascertain by mere intellectual exercise. Rather, God became flesh and dwelt among us, and this makes Christianity strange. It is a call to faith that is unique among religion. So, we talk a bit about N.T. Wright, a little Kierkegaard, and sort of meander our way to at least introducing a problem, a problem we will work to respond to more clearly in the next couple of weeks. Wondering Toward Wisdom is a part of the Tactical Faith Podcast Network. Check out tacticalfaith.com for other podcasts, blogs, news, info about, and ways to contact us. You can also contact me and Joel directly by emailing us at wondering at tacticalfaith.com or tweeting us at wonderingwisdom. And in both the email and the tweet, the Twitter, there's a underscore where the A or the O would be in wondering. Enjoy. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, Joel and I are going to be talking about, and really over the next uh, few weeks, we're going to talk about Advent because it's Advent season, which is a fancy name for Christmas. But it actually, Advent actually refers to a lot more than just Christmas. It refers to uh, the appearing of Christ in history, God become flesh, and it also refers to Christ's second return. And so, I mean, the word Advent simply means the appearing of someone, the appearing particularly of someone who is notable. Uh, so we're going to talk about the meaning of Advent in terms of what it means that God entered history and what it means that God did something in history and what that means for the way that we, rel- we talk about faith, what it means in terms of our epistemology, uh, in terms of how we look at our place in the world, and why it makes Christianity such an odd, uncomfortable, unique sort of religion. And in particular, maybe the, the one of the best ways to frame this is to talk about it in terms of apologetics. So Wondering Toward Wisdom isn't strictly an apologetics uh, podcast, but it is a part of the Tactical Faith Podcast Network, which is... Tactical Faith is specifically an apologetics organization that encourages the growth of wisdom, life of the mind of the church, and so forth. And so one of the things we're going to be talking about when we talk about God and history and the fact that we have Christianity has this historical element is we're going to be talking about how uh, we're going to be talking about apologetics. We're going to be talking about the way that we come to ascertain that Christianity is true. So what's the effect on what is called natural theology? And I think a a good jumping off point might be this this lecture that was given by N.T. Wright a little over a year ago at Samford University here in Birmingham. We'll put the link to the YouTube video in the show notes, but I was there and I was tweeting out some of what he was saying when he was giving the lecture. But the lecture is called Space, Time, and History, Jesus and the Challenge of God. And Wright made an argument that natural theology doesn't work. Maybe we should just start with this. 
Joel, can you describe to us what natural theology is? Natural theology is based on what's sometimes called the general revelation of God. That is, you know, the what we see in nature, what we see before us, what we see out in the world. And so it natural theology uses what what we can can see, what we can can perceive with our senses to point us toward God and to tell us who God is and what kind of God he, uh, there, there is. But it, it, it tends to um, serve a purpose for uh, tr- as finding common ground between uh, believers and non-believers uh, for a starting point to, to be able to come to these discussions about God. Because if we can agree on what's in nature, then we can start to work from there to, to ascertain more about who God, God's existence and who God is. Yeah, so, so natural theology is this, is really most of the arguments for God's existence are natural theology arguments. Uh, the cosmological argument, teleological argument, even, well, maybe not the moral argument, but the, the kind that we tend to focus on that appeal to the science-loving crowd. There are historical arguments as well. And one of the claims by N.T. Wright, and N.T. Wright isn't the first one to make this claim. Uh, there's actually another really famous guy who made this claim. In fact, several famous Christians who and philosophers who made the argument that natural theology is simply insufficient for Christianity. This is kind of really what I, what I really want to get to in this talk is, what is the role of natural theology? What is the role of reason in our understanding of who God is? But we need to, we need to ex- kind of explain the background of this. If you're, if you're not familiar with philosophy and epistemology and the history of philosophy and so on and so forth, this might seem a little bit strange. So let's, let's start off by talking simply about what we normally think of when we're talking about a God who, who can be proved by natural theology, what we normally think of. Uh, when we're thinking of God, I think we have a certain set of characteristics that are that we normally think of when we're thinking about God in a rational way, right? So God is uh, the greatest possible being, right? Like Anselm uh, in his ontological argument would say, God is the greatest conceivable being. God is normally how we describe God is timeless, changeless, all powerful all-knowing. But the idea is that we, we get this we get this image of God that is a, and this is really the central point that's that's troubling with God becoming flesh. We get this image of God who is kind of over and above and untouched and unchanging. Unchanged and unchanging. In fact, in many respects, this is kind of considered one of the central central characteristics of God when we're talking about God from a rational perspective. The thing is, we have this weird situation in Christianity that's a little bit important where God takes on flesh and is quite affected. In fact, one of the elements of God in the way that we start, God is normally talked about is God is without passion. And by passion, we mean things don't cause him to, to act. God himself wills and acts purely out of his, out of his own will. 
But then at the centerpiece of Christianity, which this is Advent, this isn't is this isn't Lent and Easter, is the passion of Christ, who is God. And so we have a God who's passionless, and that doesn't mean that God doesn't care about things. It just means, I mean, it, some people would say it means something like that, I think. That's, I don't think that's what we would say it would mean. But God seems to be, as we would describe God, passionless in that we have at the center of Christianity, the most important event in history is the passion of Christ. How do we put these things together? Is God, is, I guess, is, is the way that we're looking at God the right way? And I know there's a series of debates that people might be thinking, if you're, if you're familiar with theology and philosophical theology in the Christian world and so on and so forth, you might be thinking, oh, he's about to get into open theism or something like that. No, we're not. But some of those are might be questions that are related to this. What I really want to talk about is how do we know God? And how do we, what are the means by which we should try to prove God? Really, that's not even the question. What is our faith based on? Given that we live in a time that has been changed by God, by God's intervention in time, and that this historical act stands at the center of our faith, how do we hold on to the faith? How do we hold on to faith in Christ? What is it that bolsters our faith in Christ or supports our faith in Christ if we have to rely on an historical event rather than a purely rational idea? So the clearest example, the clearest difference might be something like Buddhism, which is built purely on a kind of rational, uh, at least the kind of Buddhist philosophy I've read, uh, a particular form of Mahayana Buddhism, where you it's determined by a kind of logical sequence through a series of rational ideas that leads you to this kind of conclusion. You don't need any event at all in history on which to base your belief. All you have to do is go through this series of claims. But Christianity isn't just a series of claims. There's also faith that Jesus is the Son of God, became flesh, dwelt among us, died and rose again on the third day. Ascended to heaven and is coming again. So we're living in this time between the advents, between the first advent and the second advent. What, what does this mean for us when we're thinking about who God is, belief, belief in God, is natural theology sufficient? N.T. Wright argues that no, it isn't, but he actually gives a qualified it can be in a certain kind of way, which I think that's what we're going to conclude. What is our situation? So I guess I should just throw this to Joel. We have a series of a couple of philosophers in the background here. Uh, he, he's giving me an ugly look. One of them famously is Pascal, who declared that the God of the philosophers is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Sure. That is the God that can be proven by pure reason, is not the God who appears in history. Well, to be clear, that that does not fully encapsulate the God in history. Not not that those things yes. are not that those things are false about God, but it's an incomplete picture of who God is. Right. It's it's insufficient to who God is. Yes. And the other one we have in mind, of course, is Kierkegaard or his pseudonym Johannes Climacus who wrote two books, well, 
anyway, uh, one of them is philosophical fragments or the better translation of the name is philosophical crumbs. And the other one is the concluding unscientific postscript to philosophical fragments, which also is sort of not the greatest translation of the title. <laughs> but maybe you can give us a bit of an introduction to the fragments or the crumbs and maybe a little bit of the postscript just to talk about like what is it generally speaking that that Kierkegaard's trying to do in these books and how is history a central element to what he's trying to do so in in philosophical crumbs Johannes Climacus John the or let's just translate it as John the climber is trying to come up with this thought experiment that you realize pretty quickly is a is a uh, weakly disguised thought experiment that kind of basically can, what does it mean if God exists or for the God of Christianity to be, to be real. And, you know, he kind of starts down the path of natural theology, but it quickly becomes clear that that's not going to work. But we, we have this idea of the teacher and the learner and how do we come to know know about the you know what is real kind of thing and and ultimately it quickly becomes personal it, it move it jumps from the realm of kind of what can we all see to more of talking about what kind of relationships do we all have and I'm not sure if that still counts as natural theology because no longer we're, we're not really talking about what we all can objectively uh, perceive with our senses. But there is this appeal to this common experience. So in that sense, it still is kind of a natural theology. But he he works through what would um, be necessary to for for us to learn the reality of of things, uh, which is um, has to come through God because we we are insufficient and capable beings. And this is this is a pretty short work. It's it's got five chapters in an interlude. It ends with this sense of what does it mean for us to to understand that us to accept that, um, and that and it's something that we have to accept for ourselves. It's not something that we can believe through someone else. But we ha- we have to to come into contact with that historical moment, with that moment where the the teacher lowers himself to to be equal with the learner so that they can they can meet each other and learn and the learner can actually learn not because he feels compelled but because of of, of a relationship um yeah and this is this is like one of the elements that's so interesting about this is that it it flips on its head one of the one of the issues that goes on in apologetics. So a lot of times if you're having a discussion with someone who loves science, you know, and and is doubtful about Christianity or critical of Christian Christian belief, often what they're asking for is demonstration. And by demonstration, what they mean is something that obeys a kind of law so that if you do X, Y always follows. And so if I'm going to prove God's existence, I need some sort of scientific-like demonstration of God's existence, either strictly scientific or strictly logical in some way. 
the appeal to historical an historical event is sort of weird. And so even talking about something like the resurrection, someone might say something like, uh, in fact, I think this argument was made, a similar sort of argument was made by Hume, and that is you don't see people raising from the dead. So, you know, we should take the idea that someone rises from the dead as extremely unlikely because it's not something that happens. We should have, we should, we would need uh, incredible evidence to have any reason to believe that because it's not something that happens every day. And because of that, uh, you know, Christianity looks like it requires something like blind faith. And this is, this is the issue that Kierkegaard is actually dealing with, or maybe we should say Climacus, is dealing with, but from within the context of people who have tried to make Christianity a necessary thing. I don't, we, I don't want to get into Hegel. Kierkegaard was, was, was frustrated with, the, with, this, with how simple Christianity had become uh, for the people in, in Denmark in particular, right? It's just like, if you're born there, you're objectively a Christian unless you're a Jew or maybe a Muslim. Uh, you're, you're basically, you're born a Christian. I mean, that's what you are. And he was trying to make it very difficult. But one of the things he was doing was showing how the, uh, there, there are two ways of approaching life, two ways of approaching truth. One is the Socratic and the other one is whatever the other one is. And the Socratic is you contain within yourself all that you need to know. And so as a, as a, as a thoughtful, intellectual human being, as long as you do the work, do the examination, follow the scientific, you know, the, the method of the, met, the, the scientific method and so on and so forth, you have access to all the truth. You just, it's, it's all within you. And the teacher is just someone who comes and kind of tries to stir you up to think on your own because within you is contained everything that, everything that is necessary to come to, to knowledge of the truth. But what if the Socratic isn't? What if there's another way of thinking about life? What in that case, and he goes through a whole list. This is just the beginning part of the book where, well, you don't contain within you the condition for knowledge. So the teacher has to come to you and actually has to give you the knowledge. Not only has to give you the knowledge, but has to give you the condition for except for understanding the knowledge. And so there's all this idea of this one who comes down and, and actually transforms you. We'll call it being born again. You know, we'll call the condition that you don't have, the, the condition you're in where you don't have access to the truth or even the condition for knowing the truth. Why don't we just call that sin? And you go, and it becomes this obvious plagiarism as he keeps having this interlocutor jump in. But the idea is that he's not trying to prove that Christianity is true. He's trying to prove that there, it could be possible that there's another way of looking at our our state in the world, our condition in the world. And if this is all the case, that we don't have within us all all the access to the to to all knowledge and the condition within it, then something has to have changed within history. Because if we have it, because the idea of the what he calls the Socratic is that we have this sort of uh, we had this pre-existence where we had access to eternal truth. And then upon being incarnated in birth, we forgot it at some point. And then when we learn, it's actually just uh, unforgetting anamnesis. It's the, the we can call it remembering or recollection, the doctrine of recollection. We're recollecting. 
and he gives examples in Plato. I mean, Plato gives examples of math and so on and so forth. We're remembering the good, we're remembering the we're remembering the eternal forms. But what if that's not the case? What if something new, in fact, comes and takes place in history? What if there are truths, historical truths, that are not eternal truths, where something actually changed? And that's kind of the message of Advent, I think, is that, and that's what's so weird about Christianity, something changed. And we're not used to thinking this way. Not even Christians are used to thinking this way, even though we have an historical event at the centerpiece of our of our faith. And, and, and not only something changed, but something is still changing because we have a second Advent that that we're looking forward to as well. It's we we live in the the in between time of these two advents where things are changing, and it's not just that our knowledge is changing, but like the the world as we know it is changing. So let's let, let's let's try to do two things here then in our last ten minutes or so. And in fact, our, our next two episodes we're going to talk a little bit about the how. How where we're going uh, defines the history in which we are in, the, the historical time in which we're in, and then the last one is going to be talking about Christmas and how what that first Advent, how that frames uh, where we are, because we're in this we're in this in between place between the two Advents. So let's try to do two things quickly. What does it mean for us that we are? What does it mean for our faith? that we live in a time when at the centerpiece of our faith, something changed, something changed in history. But first it means natural theology is troublesome because the, the attempt to appeal to the world, to some sort of like the world is ordered, like the teleological argument or everything that comes into existence or everything that begins to exist had a cause. And therefore, you know, eventually you get to God um, what does it mean that at the centerpiece of, of the Christian faith is not the belief in generic God, but belief in one who became flesh, dwelt among us, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, died, was buried, rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, will come again and judge, glory to judge the living and the dead. What does that, what does this historical stuff, what does it mean for our faith? What on what foundation is our faith? Epistemolo- epistemologically speaking, maybe I should say. Yeah. So when we start to engage historical events, we also start to engage actual people. We it, It's not these abstract ideas, but we're actually dealing with actual things, actual people, actual events. And so when when you start bringing people into this, you start bringing relationships into this. And so it's not something that is can remain strictly in our head through ration that we can use rationality to uh, fully capture. But we start talking about about people, about relationships, about um, how do we see people, interact with people, understand people, and which leads us to how do we understand events? And suddenly we're starting to look like we're talking about. Evaluative outlooks, like we always do on this podcast, <laughs> and be, because it—it's not, you know, there there are people who say, yeah, Jesus existed, but so, you know, that that the they miss 
the meaning of the historical um, or they, they misunderstand or they don't capture the fullness of the historical. But when you start talking about historical things, it's not, it, it becomes much more open to interpretation. And, and so what happened, you know, what happened isn't just something that we can objectively state a list of facts about, but we start to talk about how we experience what happened, how we perceive what happened. And so um, that gets really messy really quick and it becomes a lot harder to come to agreed upon conclusions or have agreed upon foundation from which to, to begin the discussion because we're, we're dealing with evaluative outlooks. So in the, in the postscript, he begins by talking about how, how the, the history of Christianity, if we're talking about the historical element of Christianity, one of the question, one of the first questions that arises is the reliability of scripture. And he talks about how, you know, you could, you could go through demonstration after demonstration after demonstration showing that scripture is reliable. And we've had this, and he talks about the historical criticism, which in Kierkegaard's time was actually pretty serious business. It's kind of been laid to rest, I think, for the most part, but I'm speaking a little bit, not totally from the outside, but a little bit from the outside. Uh, the idea of scriptures being unreliable, if, you, if you're if you an atheist listening to this, give it up. That's that's over with. That, that's, that's a lost cause. But it doesn't change the fact that even if you go through and you talk about all the textual variants and how they amount to essentially nothing and how we have more evidence of the reliability, we have we have a clearer image of the original manuscripts than we have of any ancient text. And it's not even close. Like, And we can go through these kind of discussions. It doesn't change the fact that at the centerpiece, like if I, if I had all the evidence in the world that the scripture was reliable, that's not enough to get me to faith in Christ. And what Kierkegaard says is actually, if the Bible were proven completely false or that we had no support, maybe not proven false, that's a little bit complicated, but if we had no support whatsoever for the veracity of Scripture and the reliability of Scripture, that would mean nothing to someone with faith. Now, Kierkegaard might be crazy. <laughs> but what? why does this, what does this, like, what is he you 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 know you understand Kierkegaard better than I do. Joel so so was so a little bit of a master. What but. what what I would say is is not that it, if there was no justification for the veracity of scripture, that that wouldn't mean anything to someone with faith. The, the, the pseudonyms that, that Kierkegaard says that under are often people who are looking at faith from the outside in. They 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 look at faith and say the commitment that these people have to to God and 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 to to Jesus looks like they're so committed that even if we were able to remove the support for scripture their their faith seems so entrenched in who they are that it would that they would still continue having faith even if they lost the the support of 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 scripture okay cuz i'm about to read a passage out of this that kind of sounds like he's saying it don't matter at all. At all. Well, we, <laughs> no, I mean, but it is. I mean, what he's saying is that is that the nature of a believer's faith from the outside appears to be such. Right. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Yes. Because okay. there's discussion as to how much of a Christian Climacus 
should be thought to yeah. be. Yeah. And, and I, I read Klebicus as being a little more on the outside than, than other people do. Um, okay. It's Anticlimicus who's the, who seems to be the real believer. Yes. The one who wrote Sickness Under Death. Yes. Yeah. So, so Kierkegaard's pseudonyms are not just pseudonyms, they're characters that he's writing f- right. from. That's that's an important understanding for Kierkegaard. If you don't get that, then you're going to miss a lot. He's going to be really confusing to you. Because he's going uh, to be saying both sides of this uh, on, a, on an issue. He's going to seem to be saying both sides yeah. at the same time. But that's, yeah, Kier- Kierkegaard is a complex figure. We, we should probably do some more stuff on Kierkegaard. Uh, maybe in the next year we will. When, sometimes when Kierkegaard's writing, he he puts the character, he writes from the perspective of a character who has a certain evaluative outlook, and these evaluative and some of these characters are people who do not have faith themselves, but they're trying to understand faith by writing it. Uh, but but they give us a glimpse of faith from the perspective of one who does not have faith that the picture isn't complete and it's not always accurate, but it, it, it gets at some fundamental truths about faith. As in this case, I think what he's, what, what, what's going on is the connection that, that believers have to their faith is that, that, that real believers have, you know, cause Kierkegaard's writing to a, an audience of people who call themselves Christians, but that really doesn't mean anything for their lives. Um, so when he's talking about the people who are believers, he's talking about people who are really Christians. They are so committed and have so much faith and and demonstrate that so clearly that it looks as though whatever evidence you give them wouldn't matter that they would hold on to that faith, um, which doesn't mean that that's actually what is going on, but that's how it looks to someone who either lacks faith or uh, has would would call would say they only have a small amount of faith. The, the the fundamental issue that I think we need to wrestle with, that I think Christians need to recognize, is perhaps that our relationship to the truth, who is a person, cannot be cannot be supported merely by rational arguments or scientific demonstrations. It has to be this relation. I mean, Climacus keeps talking about passion, mm-hmm. right? I mean, at the beginning of the philo- philosophical crumbs, he says, can one build an eternal happiness on historical knowledge? Let me ask you one last question. Let's do this. Given that Christianity is an historically based that there's something that happened in history that changed history, and now we're living as historical members of this body of faith formed by this historical event by Assyria. And it's not just Christ coming. God has consistently been interacting with humans in history. He didn't give a philosophy book for us to reflect on eternal truths and then have some sort of eternal connection with him. It's all based on this on the historical person of Jesus. We talk about that, personal relationship with Jesus, so on and so forth. That stuff is sort of like, we might consider it the way average people sort of talk about, but there's something deep and rich there, right? There's something really, really mm-hmm. important contained in that. So given that this is how Christianity is, given this is the, that this is the situation we're in, how is the faith of Christianity different from the faith of a religion that would have, that doesn't have God doing things in history? 
that is any other faith. <laughs> Maybe Judaism. I mean, Judaism obviously has this historical element as well. How How is the faith? Maybe I should say this, because this is really the question I'm asking is, what is wrong about our understanding of faith in Christianity, given that we always talk about this historical event, but we don't think about it? something that's changing in history. Maybe my question is badly worded, but I know that I have a tendency to see God as God in history, God's relationship to the world is always having been the same all the time. Like what changed? Uh, Has something changed? Is something qualitatively different after Christ's resurrection than before? Did something actually change or was Jesus sort of like playing out something that's always been true? Or the fact that Jesus did it, made it always true, like what's going on? I don't even know how to ask this question because it's it's a weird question. I I think what what to help me and our listeners uh <laughs> are are you are you saying the way that a lot of Christians it relate to God is such that the fact that Jesus came and and did all that he did is a historical reality that doesn't necessarily change the way we think about or that di- that didn't change the way that God ultimately relates to to the world you know when 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 we're so it, it seems like I, I want to be care I'll personalize this here. My temptation is to focus on characteristics of God, on ideas about God, and not necessarily connect them to the the person of God. And there's a there's a sense in which when we're talking about natural theology, we're talking about uh, things that are divorced from his that do not concern a historical event. Um, we can we can focus on those ideas and and keep them in our head but if something actually happened if something changed the 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 way the world works or our understanding of the way the world works um how does that change us and the way that we relate to that god yeah there's there's a discomfort with that idea because if something some historical event was essential to my relationship with God, it's not the historical event. Isn't something that I can reason to. Yeah, it's something you simply must look at and believe. Now you can make arguments about whether it actually happened or not, but it's not a necessary element of my. It doesn't arise out of my reflections on the ultimate. It's just something you have to believe because it took place. And so, and this brings up the idea of the teacher who has to come to you and give you the condition for the knowledge because the knowledge is an historical knowledge. It's not something you can just arise to by reflections on the good and some Socratic method. So that's uncomfortable for me. Yes. But I guess part of it is the idea, just this, like what's going on in Hebrews 11 when, when the author says, you know, these people had faith, but they did not receive the promise. And we have. The suggestion is that something has changed. Right. And is it just that we receive the promise because now we live after what Jesus did? Uh, and now we know that he did it. No, I think something changed. And I'm not saying that they that they all like died and aren't going. I'm just saying that 
maybe they're in some sort of place awaiting and things have changed. Like something has changed. Uh, what exactly has changed? It's it's difficult. Like, And this is what N.T. Wright's talking about. He says you can't, at the center of natural theology, in this talk he gave, at the center of natural theology has to be the of, the of historical person of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. But what does that mean? Because natural theology doesn't like history. It wants scientific truths or laws to work with. And the best answer I can give is something that we'll be fleshing out a lot more in the next couple episodes, I think. Fleshing out is a good way to say it. <laughs> um, but it's the kingdom of God. The kingdom when when Jesus shows up, it's the kingdom of God shows up too. That, that the there's something about the the king coming to earth to establish his kingdom, to take back his kingdom, depending on how you want to, you want to phrase things or or view things. Um, But there's some, some important kingdom stuff going on that, that changes. It's, I mean, at some level, you know, in the, in the great tales of King Arthur, uh, you know, when, when he disappears, when he, when he comes when he shows up, that's an important th- things have changed. Or, or in the Narnia in Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, when Aslan is on the prowl, things change. You know, winter. You know, things start to thaw. Uh, this, you know, the, there's something about the arrival of the king that changes the way the world that world is working. That that makes us reevaluate how we've thought about the world that makes us reimagine how things actually work. And like I said, what we're going to be getting into this more in the next two episodes, but there's some, I, the best way I know to talk about it or to frame it is in terms of, 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 of a kingdom of, uh, of the, return of of the king or the coming of the king and um not to get all tolkien on everyone but um but that's what i'm talking about so so no that's that's good yeah i mean this is what jesus preached yeah right the coming of the kingdom the issue is let, let me let me let me end it sort of here and this might be a criticism of kierkegaard too the issue is we generally just look at christianity in terms of my relationship with jesus my relationship with God, in which case a kingdom means nothing. It's about going off into that non-historical place where I will receive rewards for having the right relationship with Jesus, in which case the kingdom coming is meaningless. So maybe there's an element here where Jesus has come to be among us. The teacher has come to give us the condition and we're telling him to go back to where he came from and we'll be there shortly. But Jesus is like, no, the kingdom's, the kingdom's here. I've, I brought it. I, I'm Lord, <laughs> right? I'm not, I'm not go. He says, I'll go off to prepare a place for you, which we'll have to talk about that. But this idea that the goal is to get away from history ourselves. Right. That's not, that's not what Jesus talks about. There's a new heavens and a new earth, and Jerusalem is going to come down out of heaven. The place that Jesus is preparing for us, I think, is coming down. Mm-hmm. 
right? Um, of course, I mean, a lot of this is metaphor and complicated, but the point is we, we're ready for the, the, his, the, the world of history to be destroyed so that we can go off into the ahistorical kingdom. Or, but or, Jesus said the kingdom's here. Right. And, and it's, yeah, it's, it's not that we're, we're trading for a place completely unlike what we are presently experiencing, but rather we are to live in the reality that is difficult to see. And that is that the kingdom is, is here. And part of our job is to make that more clear in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. And that modifies how we look at the world, how we look at history and how we look at the people around us. Right. I mean, that's exactly what you said, right? This is a valuative outlook. And when I'm looking for an uh, an eternal kingdom that is eternal in the sense that it has nothing to do with history. It has nothing to do with now. It has nothing to do with this world. This world is complicated because it means more than one thing Mm -hmm. in scripture. Um, but it has nothing to do with the world here. That causes me to look for eternal demonstrations of the truth, and and suddenly the historicity of Christ becomes less and less relevant. It becomes less and less a part of the way I think. I'm not engaging with Christ of history. I'm engaging with the idea of God or this idea of Jesus that I've abstracted out, out of history. And we'll just have to kind of leave it at that. But in the next couple episodes, we'll, we'll, we will flesh this out a little bit more what this means. So anyway, hopefully that wasn't too confusing. It was a little bit of a strange introduction and it doesn't sound very Christmassy, but something about jingle bells. (laughs) This is Travis. This is Joel. Have a great day.